Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. It's a big world, Tyler. Indeed it is. The whole planet. We're going to be talking about all of it today with an incredible guest. Uh, We have the privilege uh, to welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast an expert in international uh, conservation issues. Uh, It's a broad topic. Uh, We're going to take a look at, a close look at, uh, the United Nations activities with respect to international conservation and specifically how they relate to the ocean issues. Uh, so it's a world that we don't spend a lot of time in, Tyler, and I always like to speak to the professionals uh, and experts in the subject area and learn what's happening around the world on ocean conservation. It really is. It's such a big world, and particularly these days with COVID, we've learned just how, I don't know, daunting global challenges can be. And we do have, turns out, a bit of a global governance system. In fact, we have done a few uh, shows touching on this with the global supply chain and uh, a couple other uh, times we've delved into the Arctic uh, and other issues. But Peter, you're absolutely right. We have a great guest today to walk us through some of what's going on on the international level. Uh, And I'm really excited to learn more about it. Joining us today on the American Shoreline podcast is Masha Kalanina. She is with the Pew Charitable Trust, one of our favorite organizations out there. She serves as a senior officer in the International Conservation Unit and has recently attended what was called the One Ocean Summit in Brest, uh, France. Uh, This was in February, just a few days ago, February 9th, 10th, and 11th. An international conference uh, convened by, at the invitation of President Emmanuel Macron, uh, bringing together world leaders uh, to talk about ocean issues and uh, really looking forward to getting a firsthand account uh, from her, uh, Tyler. Me too, Peter. And uh, I also have to say that Masha and I share the same alma mater. So we're going to have to talk about that. But first, (laughs) a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at CoastalNewsToday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. All right, Masha. Well, I teased it. Uh, We both went to GW, and uh, I graduated in 2009. Uh, I, I read that you graduated in 2007, so I think we might have overlapped a little bit. That's crazy. Yeah, that's great to hear. Um, I have nothing but the best memories of GW. So does feel like a very long time ago now. But um, what was your concentration? Well, I was focused on political science at the time, but my concentration was, needless to say, uh, spread thin. Uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, uh, what can I say? College is a learning time, a time to expand. And, For sure. And uh, it, was, it was a great experience, though, being in the middle of the nation's capital there in Washington, D.C. Uh, but, Masha, tell us a little bit about yourself. What's your background and what's your connection with the coast and ocean? 
Sure. So, and of course, it's a pleasure to be here with you guys today. So I've been with the Pew Charitable Trusts now for four years. Um, I am a senior officer with the International Conservation Unit, which is a team that supports a variety of campaigns um, focused on the environment throughout, throughout the Pew uh, organization. But as far as my background, so um, we both went to GW. Uh, that's my undergrad. I focused on business there. And little did I, did I know that I'd end up doing this kind of work, to be honest. Um, I think the interest in environmentalism uh, was really kind of clarified in law school uh, when I was in the um, Environmental Law Review Journal and writing articles uh, for consideration for publication and just kind of really got into the, the weeds of, of, of a lot of different issues facing our climate and environment today. And I took a really interesting course um, with uh, someone that later became a really good mentor and a, actually a colleague um, with uh, Holly Hazard from Humane Society of the United States. And so she inspired me to kind of take this track of wildlife conservation work initially. And then uh, I was witness to some incredible work by Pew on shark listings at the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species. And so that's kind of what sparked my interest at Pew and Oceans, and I made the jump over to Pew uh, about four years ago. It, it's a great organization, and I think many of our listeners are generally familiar with the Pew Charitable Trust. Uh, it is an organization whose name comes up on, uh, they underwrite and fund a number of incredible uh, programs. But would you do us the favor of, of talking about Pew's work in international conservation and the organization's uh, substantive program efforts. Sure. And there's really just so much to cover. So our uh, campaign work spans uh, from WTO uh, fishery subsidies reform, seabed mining, to uh, work on sustainable fisheries and fighting uh, IUU, so illegal and un unreported fishing, to work on um, coastal wetlands, mangroves, and other habitats that really help sequester carbon through the UNFCCC, so the Climate Convention, and the high seas effort, so that's to establish a convention that will give us the tools to create marine protected areas in international waters. We have a plastics campaign, so um, that's actually continuing its work after a really successful report we put out on sort of the sources of plastic and best ways to tackle this uh, crisis. And we're advocating for a new uh, convention that uh, would actually help address the plastic crisis as well through the UN. And something that I work on personally is the Convention on Biological Diversity. And that's where we've been advocating to protect and conserve at least 30% of the global ocean. So that's national waters and international waters, again, through the UN system. So many of the listeners on the American Shoreline podcast and on our network as a whole, uh, Masha, are uh, coastal practitioners in the United States, but about 15 to 20 percent of our readers on Coastal News today and our listeners are from around the world. And uh, I'm wondering if you could tell us uh, uh, a little bit about why it is important for folks who focus on 
uh, ocean and coastal issues in their communities or in their region or state, why is it important that they pay attention to the developments at the international level when it comes to ocean and coastal conservation issues? Well, I think the main reason is um, the, the species in the ocean know no boundaries. They, they, they certainly don't abide by our um, uh, you know, man-made uh, country uh, borders. And so what that means is the species that you may love and experience by you know seeing or studying in your coastal communities uh, are also traversing you know immense uh, distances whether that's whales going to Antarctica to feed um, certainly sea turtles I think we are all familiar with how wide-ranging their um, range is and so these animals shouldn't only be protected when they come into your own coastal waters that, that you know, you, you're, you're, we're all familiar with and uh, enjoy, but when they traverse international waters as well. And so like, I think the uh, Convention on the High Seas, or we lovingly call BB&J, is a perfect example of a, a way that we could all come together as a global community and create some rules around what happens in these international waters to protect um, corridors for, for a lot of these, these species. So I think, you know, that's one example. Um, otherwise, all kinds of activity, uh, international activity takes place uh, in, the, in the open oceans, certainly shipping. Um, of course, we know that there is some interest in deep seabed mining and uh, all of these activities can uh, have an overall impact on of the global commons, which is, you know, the oceans really belongs to all of us. So we should care about what happens uh, way beyond our, our own coastlines. All right. I, I'm going to try to make a connection here, Masha, and bear with me because I'm going to I'm going to re reference back to uh, our discussion just a few minutes ago about how you uh, went to law school and you studied environmental law, which, by the way, my very fine co-host here, Peter Ravella, also did. And <laughs> different school. I went to Lewis and Clark, Lewis and Clark Law School in Portland, Oregon. Oh, that's <laughs> one of the best. Yeah. Well, uh, and and Peter is a fine legal thinker, uh, of course. But I I I, I make this connection because uh, what you just said. You said that international players need to. This is a common space, and we need to make some rules. And that's kind of what you do, I guess, in law schools. You study rules and help. Help make help make the connection to me between kind of the legal way of thinking um, and how we govern international spaces, because obviously, I guess we're using treaties and stuff. And how does how does that work? And, and how do you as a, a environmental lawyer, I guess, fit into that? Well, we have sort of a, a patchwork currently of um, regional mechanisms that primarily, well, in the ocean, of course, primarily uh, address um, uh, the recovery or sort of ensuring the health of the population of certain fish uh, species that are economically important. And that is, um, you know, those, those rules are in place for a very particular purpose, but it rarely has to do with the overall ecosystem and biodiversity that um, the, you know, the ocean uh, holds. So in terms of now we need to bridge the gap between these, this patchwork 
and create a more comprehensive system where we look at overall all of the impacts of the ocean on a particular critical habitat, critical place. And Pew did a report uh, last year or maybe a little over a year um, that highlighted some important places that need to be protected in the open ocean, like the Sargasso Sea, I think is one of them, where young sea turtles seek uh, coverage in, in the, in the mm -hmm. Sargasso yes. uh, weeds. And so that's just one example where we need to have collective um, understanding about the impacts on these places and put in place mechanisms and these legal tools to uh, to protect them. And so I guess myself, so I'm not working on the BB&J treaty currently, but there are certainly other lawyers that that are. And so they would provide their their expertise in terms of creating the language uh, of the new convention that would create the mechanisms where we could have collective decision making among all of the member nations of mm. the BBNJ. Biodiversity beyond national jurisdiction, BBNJ, uh, refers to, of course, exactly what Masha was uh, introducing us to, which is the, the fact that none of the critters in the sea care about the boundaries we draw and move across them. And if we're going to do anything effective, we have to work together across these unregulated ocean spaces. Uh, Masha, I'm really curious about this issue of governance. And you talk about the patchwork and system of international governance when it comes to the ocean and ocean resources. Uh, the Law of the Sea Treaty, of course, is one of the key uh, cornerstones in the United Nations a stack of conventions related to the ocean, uh, uh, to which the United States is not a party. Uh, would you mind commenting on the state of affairs when it comes to ocean governance? How close are we to having a system that's functional and effective? And should the United States be a member of the International Law of the Sea Convention? So the next um, uh, IGC4, it is called, which is the Intergovernmental uh, Conference on the High Seas, uh, is scheduled to meet in early March. And that is its, its fourth convening. The hope was to have this be our last session um, where the treaty could be agreed and finalized uh, and then certain other procedures like ratification would take place. The likelihood is we'll need an additional um, fifth intergovernmental conference because of certainly COVID delays and all kinds of issues. So we hope we're close and we um, strongly need this uh, treaty to come together. And, and actually, we mentioned the Our Ocean Conference that took place last week in Brest. So I was there with world leaders. And one number one really issue that I heard discussed was the BBNJ, was the High Seas Treaty and the importance of concluding it as soon as possible. We actually heard that from President Macron uh, of France. So in terms of U.S. participation, I think it's it's always better to be a part of something rather than on the sidelines. And the example of this could also be from the Convention on Biological Diversity, where uh, the United States also has not ratified this treaty mm. and is basically the only country that isn't uh, a signatory to the CBD, um, this convention. And it's 
it means that the U.S. can only participate as an observer, and it just uh, it has other ways to certainly influence the process through friendly countries, but it just its voice isn't um, at the same level as a member country. So the same would be true uh, for 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 in, for any other treaty that it doesn't you know formally become a member of. We got to get in there. We should. I think it's a no brainer. Yeah, we need to be at the table. I mean, come yeah. on, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. It's it's a no. It's a slam dunk. It's a slam dunk. These issues are huge. They're multinational. They're international. And the fact that the United States is not a formal player to these conventions means we don't sit at the table formally on things like international seabed mining, for example. Right. And it's it's just very clear that uh, all of our hands are on the wheel here, that we all impact the outcome. Regard, we can't yeah. just ignore that away. We can't not participate that problem away because that's the reality. And we're such a major economic heavyweight as well. Right. And a global superpower. So it just it, it's it, it is always strange optics to me when we're not a signatory to something. Indeed. Let's talk a little bit about you mentioned the One Ocean Summit, which was in Brest, France, uh, uh, France, February 9th through 11th uh, on the French coast. And uh, we got to hear about how it was. This yeah, just happened. Tell us about the conference. Tell us about your experience there. What should we understand about it? Sure. Well, it was definitely exciting to be uh, with people again, with colleagues. And we, uh, you know, this is a little side note, but of course we wore masks, but still just to feel the energy of a room like that. Um, I just have to put that first and foremost. I'm really get, glad to get back out there uh, since, you know, being quarantined and shut down and you, you guys get it. So 100 percent. Such a key <laughs> thing. I'm, I, I'm I, envious. I have not. I want to hear like a story. Like, yeah. did you go to a little French bistro and have a wine like with with colleagues? Was that something you got to do? Yes, um, we certainly took advantage of uh, uh, French cuisine and uh, and and wine. So there were a couple of dinners and receptions. I think maybe the most fun part of the um, trip was the speakers of the conference had the opportunity to stay on a, a large ferry, so a boat, kind of like a cruise ship. Hmm. And it's it was on a secure military um, zone and. It was uh, one of the, I mean, I probably won't have an experience like, like this again. So every single person was someone that worked on the ocean. We all sh stayed in tiny little cabins and saw each other over dinner on the boat. So Fabulous. that was <laughs> I love that. And, and, you know, attending this meeting at 40 heads of state, I believe, international leaders, uh, this is not a small affair. This event uh, convened by the United States, uh, I mean, United Nations Environment Program. Um, what was the purpose of the One Ocean Summit? So it was to offer an opportunity for new announcements and commitments and calls to action. So the French government was very clear, we want this to have substance. And in fact, on Friday, just this past Friday, the 11th, France announced the extension of the Southern Lands Marine Reserve in the French Subantarctic Islands on an area of about 1 million square kilometers and including 250,000 square kilometers of highly protected waters. So no extractive activities. And that's around St. Paul and Amsterdam. So huh. this was a huge achievement. And... Um, uh, Pew certainly uh, has worked uh, on this for many years with 
the uh, Donna Bertarelli Foundation. So we have an initiative called the uh, Pew Bertarelli Ocean Foundation that was instrumental in, in securing this announcement. But also just seeing the reference to Hylene Foley, it, it's, a re- it's a really important message. And one I do want to leave your audience with um, that when we talk about protecting 30%, in fact, the best available science tells us that needs to be highly and fully protected in order to have the the benefits we want to see from marine protected and conserved areas. Hmm. So that was a really exciting announcement. Wow, that's huge. So and for those out there, of course, the 30 by 30 initiative, an international effort to protect 30% of the ocean resources and land conservation areas, I believe, also at 30%. I think that's right. Can we talk about that highly and fully? Yeah. Uh, no, I want to talk about this. Are there shades of gray in protection? I, I'm, I would love to learn more about that. Yeah. So when um, the Aichi 11 target of 10% of the ocean protection came into force, well, it's not strictly in force, it's kind of mostly voluntary, but... Parties took it seriously and then implemented into their own national um, either legislation or other rulemaking. And uh, when we saw the types of marine protected areas coming online over the last decade, we realized much of it was not high quality protection. Hmm. And that could be for a variety of resource uh, issues uh, like shortage of resources. So um, you know, not enough monitors, uh, you don't have an effective Navy in place to keep these areas well protected, or strong fishing interests that wanted to continue activities there. So you end up having like sometimes industrial scale fishing in a marine protected area. And mm-hmm. I think it, it you know, doesn't take a sort of a lot of thinking to realize that's probably incompatible with biodiversity goals right. if you want to preserve an area. So that's why yeah, actually, there's an MPA guide that was recently released. Um, Jane Lubchenco uh, led this uh, effort out of the Oregon State University with many other experts, and they came up with a, sort of like a scale of um, minimally, lightly, highly, and fully protected. Huh. So then we can label these areas, at least label them appropriately, so we know what's permitted, what isn't. Like, is there a long lining? Is there... A, you know, construction or infrastructure that's permitted. Uh, and so we know for ourselves what we're getting out of the protected areas we're establishing. Outstanding. And I would assume that the, the level of enforceability or resources available to make whatever standard of conservation is established stick is an important component of that evaluation of MPAs. Absolutely. Yes. You know, I've got to ask you, this is something I'm curious about, and I wonder if you would talk about the mechanics of this announcement of the expanded MPA uh, that that French President Macron announced at the One Ocean Summit last week. Um, Tell us a little bit more about the area, and here's what I don't understand. How do does the international community get together? Who decides? Who draws the boundary? And who has to buy in? Because I would assume that this announcement related to an area that was not within uh, French extra, uh, extra, uh, extraterritorial jurisdiction or the EEZ area of France. I mean, how does that work? Hopefully I can reflect on some of what you've asked. There may be uh, okay. some parts I don't have the expertise on. But in terms of this area, so 
Um, the highly protected reserve in St. Paul and Amsterdam protects endangered species inhabiting in that region. And they, they include critically endangered Amsterdam albatross. And they, there's only 30 breeding couples, several species of cetaceans, sea lions and penguins. Um, these tor territories are the migration route of the Atlantic and pygmy blue whales, which come to feed in the Southern Ocean and then return to warmer waters to reproduce. Um, so in total, the French Southern territories are home to 47 species of seabirds, of which 14 are considered threatened on the IUCN Red List. So we get, we get a sense of why these places are important. But in terms of the effort, uh, at, this is at least seven years in the making, and it takes a lot of um, engagement from local communities and, and leadership from uh, the folks on the ground. And, and some of them have uh, uh, attended global meetings like the conservation, World Conservation Congress in Marseille and uh, certainly the One Ocean Summit to speak on behalf of their own, you know, their own nation, their own region uh, to, to express support for, for these expansions. But I will say the, the French government did have a, a heavy hand in, in this and, and you know, we commend them for their continued engagement with the local leadership to, to secure these, uh, these expansions. Very cool. Um, one of the things that I'm noticing about how you talk about these uh, these international conventions is like there's like a bunch of letters and then a number. <laughs> <laughs> and because uh, I, you know, and I, I a lot was, of a lot of I was first introduced. I was first introduced to this uh, uh, way of thinking with COPE. COPE. We have COPE 26. And I, I was confused because I thought the number had to do with the year that it occurred. But no, it's like the Super Bowl. <laughs> you're there. You're counting forward, okay. ladies and gentlemen. But uh, uh, can you put the uh, this one ocean summit in the context of, um, uh, the, say, the last COPE? And uh, we, we are going to be talking about the Our Ocean Conference as well. Uh, you know, do do these international conferences that happen on a calendar one after another, do they fold in? Does momentum get generated from one to the next? I imagine a lot of the same cats are at, you know, these things. Uh, how, how does that work? I think your larger question is like, what's the point of all of this? Um, <laughs> which I totally <laughs> yeah, get. <laughs> that's where I'm trying to go with it. Um, and well, let me give you one example. So you mentioned the Our Ocean Conference. And so that was uh, started by then Secretary John Kerry. Um, and the next uh, meeting will be in Palau on April 13th and 14th. And uh, so Palau is co-hosting with the United States this, this kind of next iteration. Hmm. And this, the same for, for our ocean. It actually followed um, the Our Planet Summit uh, that President Macron hosted, I believe, more than once, but I wasn't doing this work then, so I'm not sure. Um, but as an example, the uh, past six conferences of the Our Ocean Summits resulted in 1,400 commitments for the ocean, uh, over $91.4 billion uh, committed in these various uh, announcements that came forward. And uh, as a result, at least 5 million square miles of ocean were protected. 
So wow. there are meaningful, yeah, so there are meaningful outcomes out of uh, these global uh, gatherings. Yeah, it's so good to hear. And uh, this, I'm wondering as someone who's been, been with Pew now for four years and working in the International Conservation Unit, uh, one of the NGOs that's a participant in these international conferences on ocean conservation and protection, uh, the commitment in the, in the, and the time and the energy of the participants is significant here. And I'm very pleased to hear that there's measurable uh, specific outcomes that have occurred. Um, when you look at this, uh, step back a little bit, Masha, from, from the work ahead, uh, where are we on the timeline of, of getting to uh, serious levels of, of effectiveness? How, how well are we doing are we halfway there? Are we, are we? Do you feel like the momentum is good? Give us a sense of, of, of progress here. How good are we doing or how poorly are we doing? Um, I think we're doing moderately well. Okay. <laughs> Sounds like a B. Maybe, Sounds a like B maybe a C. Maybe a C. Would you is say a C, C plus? C plus. C plus. Okay. Um, Ouch. That's going to hurt the GPA, a, Peter. That's a 78, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, did, I, I didn't like C's. I was, I, it's going to drag down our GPA. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm sorry to drag it down. I mean, there's certainly things that we're, we need to improve. And when you have an international commitment, it has to be translated, as I mentioned earlier, to the national level. So into national regulation, legislation, et cetera. And so when, when that doesn't happen, it's, it's more difficult to hold a government uh, uh, accountable. Right. So at, like at CITES, if you have a, a new species listed, then the, the, the members are required to protect that um, species under national law. And, and there is a greater sort of enforcement tools they're not perfect under CITES than, than many other conventions, mm -hmm. which is what, which, because there's trade at stake, right? And so you have the potential of sanctions um, against a nation that violates sort of the rules here. Right. That doesn't really exist in many other conventions, this kind of like the teeth that everyone talks about. And that, that's a challenge. And so I think that's where NGOs uh, that work on the national level are so critical uh, and, and that because they can be the advocate for ensuring that we are translating international commitments into what happens Got domestically. It. And that's where really where the rubber meets the road is if the United States participates in these international conferences, in the conventions and and makes commitments on the international stage. Uh, the the actual reality of that execution will depend in part on the Congress of the United States, the President of the United States, our Secretary of State, and others that bind the U.S. to those international commitments. Uh, would you mind uh, giving us a sense of, of how well the United States is doing in terms of executing its commitments on the international stage versus other countries? Are there some real, uh, you know, starlights out there that you think are really serious about what they're doing, and how do we compare as a nation? I think we fare very well. Um, I, the this administration in, in particular takes uh, uh, conservation very seriously, and there is we have we have 
agencies in place who have the resources to, to, to implement these commitments. I can give you an example. So um, the United States uh, announced last January, I believe, its commitment to America the Beautiful. And that includes a 30 by 30 uh, domestic uh, effort. But as part of that, they, there are a series of consultations that have taken place and are still ongoing. For example, as the administration works to finalize uh, the America the Beautiful Atlas, which would um, become sort of the go-to resource to understand what are the places we are protecting and conserving and where are we toward our goal. I think that consultation process is, is impressive. It's probably something that many other nations don't have the resources to, to, to do and to, to take it seriously. Hmm. But, but as an example of where there may be room for growth, um, so the United States not being a party to the Convention on Biological Diversity like isn't bound by all of the various sort of terminology that's uh, uh, been uh, adopted. One of them is this new concept of OECMs, another acronym, Other Effective Area-Based Conservation Measures. In in simple terms, um, this is where an area was not intended to be a protected area, like it's not its primary purpose, but it does provide significant benefits to biodiversity. And a Hmm. really good example would be like, military zone that's just no go there in there obviously there are no like military exercises but it ends up being a de facto protected area yeah privately owned uh areas that maybe like a hotel with a protected you know coastal area around it on an island in um maldives could be uh considered an uh if criteria are met an oecm so uh, and and some in, in areas protected by indigenous people and local communities, if they so wish, could be also considered OECMs, even though they may be protected as like sacred burial grounds, etc. I see. So, so the U.S. There are certain guidelines that were adopted by the parties to CBD about, and and then the IUCN has contributed to this also with their own guidelines on like what these should look like, but now the U.S has um, an opportunity to interpret this domestically. And I'll be honest, we're a little worried that the, the, the guidelines and the, and the um, decisions adopted under CBD won't necessarily be followed because U.S. isn't a party. And there may be areas that are, for example, um, fisheries management areas that are only controlled for like one specific species recovery, hmm. but then there's all kinds of other activity there that we're not necessarily um, prohibiting. And then we're calling it an OECM, but is it, and is it consistent with international practice? Is it setting the best example? So anyway, all of that's playing out now wow. in the U.S. context. What an interesting career field you are in. This is such a dynamic and complex and multi-layered I agree. Subject area. I would love, I would, I bet the DC, well, I mean, we've been in COVID. Yeah. But I, you know, as soon as COVID lets up, I bet, I bet the DC happy hour scene with Masha is <laughs> freaking awesome. <laughs> I bet so. Yeah. This is some interesting inter- shit to talk about. It is a very yeah. interesting conversation. I, Everyone come out and get drinks with me in DC. <laughs> well, let me, uh, are there, we, we've talked about the fact that the United States is not a member of the convention on biodiversity, the CBD or the, uh, law of the sea uh, convention either. 
Is there an where is there an energy or uh, within the United States to to move us in this direction? Uh, who is the spokesperson for our participation, or the organizations or groups, or is are there people in Congress? Is there an effort to get us to join these international conventions and to move forward cooperatively with the rest of the world? Well, I mean, to be honest, the U.S. is an observer, so it does attend the meetings and engage uh, in that capacity. So, okay. so the U.S. is present, and and it's usually um, the State Department or NOAA, um, sometimes other agencies that are represented. Okay. Um, so like at CITES, it would be the U.S. Trade Representative's office uh, engaged as well. So there, and well, anyway, we're a site, we're a signatory okay. there. But so, I, I mean, I think that it, the ratification process within the Senate is so complicated. And obviously you, you guys know the uh, po- political divide there. So yeah. it, I just, I think it wouldn't necessarily be time well spent necessarily now meaning that it would just be extremely challenging. I think there are really yeah. good NGOs working toward Man. this. I'm, I'm not saying we I disagree. <laughs> the ground's not fertile. I'm I mean, sorry. Mitch McConnell like, would hate that. Well, it's, what she's, I think it's correct. She's saying, look, that the circumstances are just not conducive to moving forward in the U.S. Senate. And, you know, given the polarization in a 50-50 split, I mean, I, 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 that's hard to argue with that. You'd have to be a fool to argue otherwise. But what, what you're also saying is that... Um, it turns it into a political thing, yes. and that can be yeah. that can be a, a a winner or a loser. And what I will say, just in in this is my own opinion here, but I have been very pleased to see Noah kind of step out a little bit more on climate change recently. Yeah, yeah. and um, you know, historically they didn't do that. Hey, we're the science agency. We're we're not here to use get step into the politics of it. Um, and and I don't think they really have changed their tack on that, but they are addressing the problem square on. Yeah. And I do think that, like, you know, I would like to see our, our political leaders, um, even if we are in a a, a a time of contention, bring these things up. Hmm. Uh, I, I would prefer that than hmm. they not be brought up myself. What do you think, Masha? Well, I, I would agree. I think it's, a, it's definitely a step in the right direction. I, I'm sure the the role of, uh, sp- you know, special presidential envoy for climate, John Kerry, has has made it, has played a big part in that. Um, I think it'd be cool if we had a special presidential envoy on, on biodiversity, uh, just to shed more light on um, not not just climate. There's a bit of a internal battle between biodiversity and climate folks and who hmm. gets the m- most attention and what is I want to of... hear more about that <laughs> yeah. well I, I do mean, this is kind of the shop talk inside the con- international <laughs> no, no, conservation I want to hear community what, what's the what's the divide there well the way that a lot of um, heads of state have now started to describe things is that climate and biodiversity are two sides of the same coin and actually you guys mentioned COP26 under UNFCCC, so the climate COP that took place in Glasgow last year. We saw that narrative for the first time, really just like more than ever amplified. Mm. And and, and the idea is um, if we uh, limit carbon carbon emissions and we're successful, you know, in in reaching all of our UNFCCC goals, but 
meanwhile, we're slashing and burning all of our forests and mining and just dredging and destroying the seafloor. What, what's it all for? Right. So it's yeah. like we cannot only focus on climate, but that community has been extremely successful in getting the global attention to focus on climate, rightfully so. But we are at a pivotal moment where we really need to be able to focus on both. And that means like heads of state talking about biodiversity and, and the environmental protection. I like it. I think that there is a difference. I mean, climate change as an issue is a is an explanation or a driver uh, that is a threat to a lot of species, millions of species, according to some. Um, and uh, is, so it's a cause. And the idea of biodiversity itself, the protection of, of these of species richness around the world is, uh, you know, a direct uh, application of advocacy to to a, to an outcome. So I. You know, they do go together. I think climate change is such a big deal, but uh, I like the idea of this two sides of the same coin thing. They've got to be hand in hand, don't they? Totally. And I think that message is finally coming through. And um, it, it's also coming through in terms of uh, financing of both climate and biodiversity efforts. Hmm. So so we, we need to ensure that countries like the United States, major donor countries, which also include Germany, France, Canada, you know, many countries in the EU that have the resources um, that need to step up not only their climate financing, but also their biodiversity financing now. And that's part of the discussion at CBD as well. Yeah. How do we mobilize sufficient resources to make this, this, this happen? So much to do. So are you going to Palau in April? Well, I have... Excellent colleagues who are much better versed in the all things around our ocean. So they will be attending Palau rather than myself. Okay. Um, but we certainly will have a, a, a few presence there. And um, we really commend the leadership of the U.S. and, and Palau governments in, in moving this forward. And you know, we definitely look forward to some exciting announcements. It, it, you know, it's, these are useful platforms that give the media attention that these commitments need. So I see. that's really exciting. And you know, it's a report to the world, essentially, as you say, these these events, the, the uh, summit, the Ocean Summit in, in Brest, France, that just was completed are uh, moments of announcement and direction and commitment uh, where we all get to see a little bit of what the work is of the staff in the communities around the world that happens between these events. Um, are you expecting any significant announcements at the Our Ocean Conference in Palau coming up in April? Is there any sort of, uh, you know, are they giving any hints as to what we might hear? So not that I can comment on. <laughs> so the, otherwise they wouldn't be an announcement. The secret. That's true. Okay. So the answer is <laughs> we're not going to get a stay scoop. Tuned. Stay no, tuned. Sorry, guys. <laughs> it's a teaser. It's a it's teaser. A teaser. Um, You'll well, have to have us back on with some of my colleagues. <laughs> well, I would love to. I think that the expertise in Pew is always welcome on our network and on our show. We just, uh, uh, it's the amount of energy and expertise it takes to participate uh, in these international uh, uh, environmental and conservation efforts is very, very high. Uh, it's a, it's a large level of expertise. Do you speak multiple languages? Are you a, are you a person who can attend and, 
and participate with your colleagues from around the world directly in that way? Well, I was actually born in Russia. You could probably tell by my last name. And I do speak Russian, which is a very helpful skill, I have to say. Mm -hmm. um, Russia being uh, such a critical player in, in most of these conventions, um, you know, due to its own yeah. natural beauty and uh, habitats and obviously enormous coastline and so yeah. um, and interests in Antarctica so and, and the Arctic. So there is a lot at stake here. So it's been it's been interesting um, to to but not just Russia. So uh, former Soviet Union countries tend to speak Russian and uh, I've run into many other interesting individuals like even from Palestine who speak Russian because they studied in Baku, Azerbaijan. And it's it's been a very useful language, if, if I if I could say so myself. And yes, then I speak course. a little bit of Spanish. So I try to practice with with colleagues from, you know, Latin America when I can as well. So it's it's February 2022. Uh, we I think we're heading into a bit of a lull on the pandemic. There's a good chance I'll be in London in April uh, for a wedding of my niece. I'm hoping that the conditions are conducive. But uh, as you look ahead on this year, uh, Masha, can, what are you looking forward to professionally uh, coming up in 2022? Uh, what might be the most important issues for the Pew Charitable Trust International Conservation Unit this year or, and, and for you personally? So some important milestone, milestone, oh my gosh, milestone moments. <laughs> this is what happens on the 52nd minute. <laughs> right. um, so we have critical milestones, which include this uh, intergovernmental conference that I mentioned, the High Seas Treaty. So if it's not this round, we hope another meeting will take place this year where we can finally get it done. The uh, WTO was postponed into this year and hopefully will take place this summer. So we're uh, really hopeful for an agreement on tackling uh, uh, fish, harmful fishery subsidies at, at the WTO. And then for me personally, I, I work closely on the 30 by 30 effort. So this uh, convention on biological diversity it's going to have its own cop or conference of the parties in end of august early september in china actually they're still hoping it'll be in china and that's where this important global target would be adopted so professionally this is like we were thinking that 2020 would be the super year for the oceans but it's looking like it's going to be this year since meetings are moving forward. Oh, and I didn't even mention the UN Ocean Conference yep. in Lisbon in June. Um, and so, and where we kicked off the ocean decade, sorry, decade of ocean science last year. So there's, there's a lot of momentum for oceans and it's very exciting. So good to hear, so much work to do. Uh, I would just say much room for improvement in the human community when it comes to uh, our understanding, use, and, and protection of, of natural resources, living and unliving, uh, the land and water spaces we count on. So, so much work to do. Uh, Masha, thank you so much for taking us into this fascinating uh, universe of international conservation and the work that you do with the Pew Charitable Trust. Uh, we really appreciate your time today. 
Such a pleasure, and thank you guys so much for having us. Ladies and gentlemen, it is Masha Kalanina. She is with the Pew Charitable Trust. She is a senior officer in the International Conservation Unit and working hard with lots of players, both governmental and non-governmental around the world, to do good things. Uh, We need it. Thank you very much, Masha, for everything that you do and your colleagues at the Pew Charitable Trust. Thank you both so much. Birds on the lawn, sunlight at dawn, singing mama now.